This is Philosophy Takes on the News. Hello, welcome to another Philosophy Takes on the News. I'm Simon Kirchin, a philosopher based at the University of Kent. We're recording on Friday the 18th of February. This is the week that saw Prince Andrew reaching an out-of-court settlement with Virginia Jeffrey. NATO and Russian forces continuing to square up to each other on the Ukrainian border, and Storm Dudley wreaked havoc across the UK. And outside my window, Storm Eunice is doing the same. We'll be addressing some of these issues later on. We'll also be spending time in the second half of the pod thinking about COVID. How could we not? The world may be emerging from the pandemic and we think about what lessons we should learn. Joining me to discuss this week's news, we have Vittorio Bufaki from University College Cork. Hello, everyone. Um, as an Italian living in Ireland, I'm, gr- I'm glad there are no Brexit restrictions on this podcast. Thank you. <laughs> uh, all the way from the University of Durham, Philip Goff. Hello, good to be here. Thanks, Philip. And writer and philosopher Julian Bagini, who's also the academic director of the Royal Institute of Philosophy. Uh, I think as a half Italian living in England, I am very annoyed there are Brexit restrictions on all sorts of things. (laughs) Thanks, Julian. So let's get straight to it. Julian, let's stick with you. You had a piece published on animals this week in The Guardian in the light of footballer Kurt Zuma kicking his cat. Um, Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, yes. I mean, the fact that Kurt Zuma kicked his cat and a video was shared was awful and appalling. But I couldn't help but notice the sort of contrast between the fact that this resulted in a petition signed by more than 150,000 people. And within 48 hours, his club had fined him, his cats had been seized, and everyone was very happy. Um, Not so long before that, there was another football club had signed, actually signed a player who had lost a civil rape case. And the furore around that, 6,000 signatures on the petition, and it took quite a bit longer for the club to do anything. And it just made me think about, as, as I often do, about how we say we're a nation of animal lovers, but actually our affection and concern for animals is remarkably selective. And yeah, so it's not just a question of the fact that you know, it, this was out of proportion with the reaction to a, a rapist, for example. But even out, of, it's out of proportion with other animal issues. So all these people who are really t- annoyed that someone has kicked a cat are probably feeding their own cats on animals which have been raised in conditions which amount to a lifetime of misery. It, it's quite extraordinary, I think, how how just how selective we are in in when we do and we don't think about animal welfare. Thanks, Julian. Uh, Vittorio, Philip, any thoughts about that? Yeah, it's um, <clears throat> it's interesting to think <clears throat> that so many people <clears throat> were so upset about this um, incident, which of course is a serious incident. But I can I can see all these people sitting around a dinner table um, saying unkind things about Zuma um, and then biting into a cheeseburger. Um, it. it I find it very hard for anyone who's carnivorous to really take the moral high ground on, on this issue. But but for me, Victoria, it's not about carnivorous or not. It's actually because I think that's that's a bit misleading in a way because carnivorous covers a huge range of people. I am carnivorous, but I don't eat very much meat. And one reason for that is that I don't want to eat the meat which has been brought up 
in those terrible conditions. Uh, so I, I only eat meat if I'm very sure of its provenance, right? Now, that's kind of okay, I think. But I thought part of the problem, again, I find with it, when people talk about animal rights and animal issues is that I think this kind of inconsistency people have, it's not just because they're being inconsistent in that classical illogical way is that actually i don't think in our society we really know what the right way to relate to the animal kingdom is so i either we really sort of relate to animals as though they were kind of little humans who demand the same rights and you know should be treated in the same way or we're just kind of indifferent and i think the right attitude is actually very difficult it requires subtlety and thinking about different circumstances and understandably i think people don't want to do that they just want to keep it black and white yeah, I mean, kind of kind of in line with what Julian is saying. Actually, my New Year's resolution after kind of thinking about this for a long time was to really make a, a firm commitment only to eat animal products if I am totally sure that they're not factory farmed, including ingredients in things. You know, I think a lot of people might might not eat factory farm meat, but then we'll just eat chocolate without thinking where the milk comes from. And, you know, a lot of my vegan friends challenged me on this saying, you know, there's still cruelty and I know, I mean, even even in the um, farms where cows are kept in the best conditions, when their calves are taken off them, they do go through a, peri- a period of pretty bad mourning for about four days. So, there, I mean, there is still suffering there. But, I, but, I, but what I was thinking was, you know, if we're thinking, just thinking in, in terms of animal welfare, if we're thinking in terms of harm reduction, perhaps that's a principle that the principle of not eating things that are factory farmed is something that more people could get on board with. You know, if, if people went to restaurants and said, is this meat factory farmed? If not, you know, what's your vegan option? If people looked on ingredients, you know, to, for the certainty that it's, that it's not factory farmed, that could potentially be something that could, could, could influence the market and, and um, you know, c- could help animal welfare more perhaps than a smaller number of people being vegan. I don't know. I'm, I'm with you on that, Philip, but I'm a bit dispirited there about how few people do that. There are, there's a small percentage who become vegan and a small percentage who become vegetarian. And, and, I, and I, I salute the fact they're making an effort because it seems to me that for most other people, there are very few people like me who kind of aren't vegan or vegetarian but are careful. And I'm always astonished by this. And, and philosophers, I have to say, are no different to anyone else. You know, Over the years, you go to dinners with philosophers after events and all that kind of stuff. And I've yet to find somebody else do what I do, which is like, as you say, in the restaurant, say something like, what can you tell me about the pig? Well, yeah, you feel (laughs) awkward. You feel awkward (laughs) because it's not socially accepted. It's fine to say to your friend, if you're invited to dinner, I'm vegetarian and vegan. But to say, actually, I will eat meat if you make sure that it's that it's not factory farmed. You know, you feel feel a bit awkward. So actually, people get really annoyed with me on this because I... I defend panpsychism, this view that consciousness is everywhere and pervades the universe. So people assume I'm going to be vegan. Uh, but, but actually, it makes things a bit more complicated because if, if you think plants are, are, are not, not conscious, then at least you, you've got a clear dividing line there because you can just say, I'm not going to eat things. I'm, I'm not going to eat things that are conscious, but I think plants are conscious. And so I've got to eat something. So, so, so it's, so this is why I've been driven to the, to the position I have, which, which does annoy a lot of my panpsychist brethren, but there you are. I, I couldn't believe it. We, we got through to seven minutes and only at that point did Philip Goff mention panpsychism. <laughs> it and was connected. Well. It we was, did pretty well. I won't, I won't mention it again. <laughs> so immediately we've gone on to vegan vegetarianism and think about the provenance of food, right? But 
but that's that's pretty different from Kurt Zuma kicking a cat, right? Or is it? I mean, is there a difference between the sort of things we're eating and putting in our bodies and actual going out and and physically assaulting animals, or is that, or is that, or for you, well, is, there, is there no difference, Julian? Well, there, there is a difference in the sense that the Zuma thing was just gratuitous harm without any kind of payoff at all, and there's some there's something offensive about that. It's true. Um, it's not saying these things are exactly the same. I think one of the things, again, I find frustrating when you have moral debates with people is that when you make these... So my cat is having a little choke, talking of um, sentient creatures in I, I pain. Hope, I hope you've given um, us some good, some good pet food, Julian. Yeah, well, it costs us a fortune so you have to buy the few brands that make sure it's all <laughs> ranging free. Um, <laughs> no, but yeah, people, yeah, when you make, you're, you've got to make sort of comparisons. Making comparisons is a good thing to do in moral philosophy to get people to think about whether their standards are consistent. But, you know, that isn't making things exactly the same. And then people turn around and say, oh, so you're saying that mm-hmm. Zuma kicking his cat is exactly the same as mistreating factory farmed animals. No, they're different in, in two ways. It's worse in the sense that it's totally gratuitous, right? But in the yeah. sense it's better in the sense it was brief and didn't last. So, you know, if, if I were a cat, for example, I mean, if I were a wild, if I were an animal, you know, this is a silly thought experiment, um, would I rather be a cat who got the a kicked two or three times in my life? Or would I rather be a pig who was brought up in a crate where I couldn't move for my entire life? I think I know which one I'd go for. I mean, most human beings have been kicked a few times in their life. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, 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 in some ways it's, it's not exactly the same. But the, the point is just simply about drawing people's attention to the fact that uh, to get so outraged about that one uh, brief moment of animal cruelty and to be indifferent to enduring ongoing daily animal cruelty is, is can't be right. I think while we're on vegetarian and veganism, though, I think there is another consideration here, namely namely the environment. I mean, I mm-hmm. think there's a general consensus that, you know, if it, it, a plant-based diet would halve land usage and and halve greenhouse gases as well. So, I mean, I, I, I so in terms of animal welfare, I, I feel comfortable with my decision to own, only eat things that aren't factory farm but in terms of the the more you know, because the, the the problem is the more humane the treatment the more land it takes up the har- the har- more harm to the environment so so i do feel a pull of veganism for uh, for environmental reasons um so I'm, I'm talking a lot at this stage, but you just touched on one, on one of my pet topics as well there, Philip. Um, it is, again, much more complicated than that. I mean, a lot of people think plant, good for the environment, animals, bad for the environment, and better treatment, worse for the environment. It's so much more complicated than that. For example, like almond milk, a lot of almond milks, the almonds is coming from places which are environmentally disastrous because the amount of irrigation required. And in terms of farm animals, the evidence on this is, is somewhat contested. But actually, when you have a pasture-based system, uh, where the pasture itself acts as a carbon sink. The arguments are that has a less of an impact over, over the whole cycle than a lot of other farming methods. And a lot of the research which suggests otherwise is not looking at the full production chain. So the very fact that, yes, the animals kept in the feedlot very close together, their direct emissions are less than the grazing, farting cows out on the pasture. But if they're being fed by soy, which has come from deforested land, transported from South America or something, so it's a lot, lot worse. So again, I'm afraid it's hugely, hugely complicated. Well, it, it is complicated. And I, I mean, you are going... You are going a bit. I know you put research into. I guess you are going a little bit against the consensus, there, aren't you? I mean, I mean. So, I mean, from my understanding, I mean, the the issue with with soy is like ninety three percent 
of of the soya we use is is used to feed livestock mm. and then a lot of the uh nutritional value is lost going from um thinking from plant protein transforming mm. into animal protein whereas if you just eat the 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 the, the, the soya directly then you, mm. you you save a lot of a, a lot of that nutrition and um um and i know you, i I, re- I read back on your article and you're saying that well a lot of um land you put cattle on could not be used for crops anyway but i mean the counter argument i've heard for example from george mombio is that well what we should do is let that land rewild and and become a carbon sink um so look i mean you've looked into this a, l- a lot more than me so i'm not sure i could uh, totally uh combat every point but it does seem to me that the the the, the, the science you know the, the the consensus overall is that we should eat a lot less meat for, for would be better for the environment overall but that yeah, um, the, that is right. The overall consensus is true, but the problem is that consensus judgment is based on uh, n- not disaggregating all the different forms of production. And the fact of the matter is that most of the meat that's produced and most of the dairy that is produced is produced in that deeply inefficient way, you say. So whichever way you look at it, it's got to be a lot less. It's certainly not defending the status quo. But um, I think that you shouldn't feel. I don't. I think you shouldn't feel bad about the the relatively small quantities of um, meat and dairy you get if they're from the right sources, even from an environmental point of view. And on that point, you say it's against the consensus, but I think sometimes what's presented as a consensus is, first of all, it's not quite right. But secondly, it's a consensus um, about what the overall system as it stands at the moment is doing compared to whether we stopped it. It's not a consensus about what the optimal systems would be, mm. et cetera, et cetera. It is- I, mean, I mean, another option is to go to, as it used to be, maybe having meat on special occasions, you know, or treating it as a, rather than just having it as a staple, every, you know, um, and that's what I'd like to move towards. Um, and, you know, because especially non-factory form meat is probably unaffordable to a, to a lot of people. Um, and so seeing it as more of an occasional special luxury i think might be a better way to go Perhaps we should do that for our cats as well you know bring out the whiskers on special occasions um listen, that, that was great so should we move on and just cover one or two other things guys um oh go on vittorio yeah let me let me just say one on, more, we'll a couple of things on on the right sources for for the meat um this idea that you can go to a dinner party and ask your host, you know, where did you get your meat from? I actually think that's highly problematic from a purely class analysis point of view, because that's kind of asking, how much have you paid for your meat? Because um, I only eat expensive meat. So, <clears throat> so I certainly wouldn't do that. And I would not like to be asked, even though I, I agree with the principle that we consume far too much meat and meat should be more expensive than it is now. Um, the other, and this is going back to Zuma, um, because I, I, I'm not vegetarian. I, in a sense, I feel guilty for it, but I'm not vegetarian. But I have one thing in common with Zuma, which is not that I kick cats, um, partly because um, I am a cat lover. And I think I was upset by that story because it was a cat to some extent. And like, like Russo, I actually think that cats are a model for, for all of us humans. Um, but like Zuma, um, I've, I've eaten horse meat because actually in the continent, that's um, not unusual. So it is possible that Zuma at Christmas um, 
made the casserole with with uh, horse meat because it's it's actually very tough meat and you have to cook it in a certain way. Um, uh, and people, I assume, know that and they don't have a problem with it. And I kind of wonder why don't they have a problem with it? Um, but this is a British thing um, of being appalled to equine butchers. Yeah, yeah there's certainly something gratuitous, I think. That's the word Julian's used a couple of times about Kurt's behaviour, Kurt Zimmer's behaviour. Um, go on, Philip. Well, just to come back on the first point. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I think there's some, some, something to what Victoria was saying there about the uh, class-based worries. And, and as I say, you know, non-factory organic meat is just unaffordable for some people. But I don't, I mean, I think it's not too dissimilar with vegetarianism or veganism. I think, you know, I think um, a lot of people would, w- especially with less money, might have a, a largely meat-based diet. And if you go around saying, could I have the vegan option, please? I think that's already, it, it, it is it is complicated for all sorts of reasons. But we do understand it to be a, a, a acceptable people to say, look, I'm vegetarian, I'm vegan, that's my, that's my ethical choice. I think it should also be an ethical and an acceptable ethical choice to say look i i, I don't eat non i don't eat factory farm stuff i don't eat tortured animals you know if you if you have something else or if you have something you know vegetarian or vegan or or uh, you know it, it's certainly complicated but i don't see why that's so it's not asking people where they get their meat from it's just saying this is my this is my personal ethical commitment i don't see why it shouldn't be as acceptable in the way being a vegetarian is i suppose I mean, I'm, I'm kind of with Vittorio to a certain extent. But I think Philip's got some good points there, which is there is this kind of, there's an ethics of, of hospitality and as being a guest and being a host. And I, I do think we, we should be careful what we d- d- ask and demand of others. And I think here, you know, in a sense, it's not about high principles, it's just common sense will tell you what to do here. So, for example, what I often say to people is, you know, look, you know, I, it's a bit complicated what I do and don't eat. So, you know, just kind of assume, if it's not too much fuss, assume this, that and the other you know, blah, blah, and not to get upset, not to feel like, because I think we have this sort of sense of purity about this stuff. What if you do turn up and they've cooked something which isn't according to your criteria? Well, it's actually, there are some moral positions where it would just be awful to do it. But from my point of view, you know, if the animal's dead, it's on the table, it's been cooked, et cetera, et cetera, you know, to avoid waste, to avoid offence, to do it, that's, that's that would be better to do that than to sort of like have my line in the sand. Because I think that with food, with food ethics, it often becomes kind of uh, sacralized in a way. It becomes almost like sacred. One feels like one becomes impure by eating, ingesting, bringing into your body something you think has been immorally produced. And it's not about that. Ultimately, what we're trying to do is to, is to change the food system in the long run, structurally. What you do or do not eat on any particular occasion isn't going to affect that. Uh, I think it's very difficult to sort of remember that. And I think people get ooey and icky about eating things that they morally object to. I want to see a debate between you and George Monbiot, Julian, because uh, you've you've both researched much more than I have on this topic. Uh, you know, he thinks we need, all need to be vegan for the planet, uh, and that's how I let you know. If I don't, if I'm not an expert on a topic, I like to see you know two sides. Can you set that up, Simon? Yeah, that's right. We're, we're getting on, we're getting on next week's episode. Um, listen, let's move on to at least one other topic. Uh, Philip, you wanted to talk about Prince Andrew. Oh yeah, <laughs> well. Um, yeah, well, just the, I suppose the issue of um, the, the the Queen allegedly funding his legal bills, and I suppose we've had assurances that um, that it's um, 
it's the Queen's own private money rather than public money. But I think when it comes to the monarch, it's the, the dividing line between her public money and her private money is, you know, to say the least, r- rather ambiguous. I look back at um, the great book, uh, uh, who, who Owns England by um, Guy, Guy Shrubsoul, which I should strongly recommend. I look back at the chapter on um, land ownership of the crown and the church and um, I mean, you, most of the Queen's income or a substantial amount of the Queen's income comes from the uh, her ownership of the Duchy of Lancaster, which, you know, constitutionally uh, belongs to, to the crown, which, you know, I was blown away again looking back at this, which consists of 45,674 acres. It, it involves more land in North Yorkshire, dozens of farms near Burton-upon-Trent, entire villages in Cheshire. And, you know, it delivers huge sums of money. So in, in 2018, it delivered a, a 20 million profit. And, and of course, the Queen didn't pay a penny of corporation tax on that. You know, the, so the, the monarch is not illegally obliged to pay any tax. From, from the 90s, the Queen has voluntarily paid income tax. Um, but, but she doesn't pay any other kinds of tax. So, for example, when she inherited the Queen Mother's estate, which I think was 70 million, she didn't pay a penny of inheritance tax on it. So I think, I mean, look, I think there's not much difference between giving someone public money and letting them off taxes. And so, you know, this is a huge, you know, so just in the sense of being let off paying taxes, that is a huge amount of money. She also got, uh, going back to the farming issue, 38,000, oh, sorry, the the Duchy of Lancaster, uh, her uh, property got 38,000 in farm subsidies in 2016. And um, but also, you know, look, this is this. I don't see why a particular individual living in this country should have a constitutional right to this huge part of England and the sums uh, gained from it. I, you know, I think we should take that into public ownership. Use that. Use that twenty million every year to. Um, I don't know if it's twenty million every year. It wasn't twenty eighteen to fund schools and hospitals. Maybe maybe the Queen could be the sort of protector of it or something. But um, yeah, so I, so I don't, I, I, don't, I don't think there is, we can straightforwardly say that it's not public money uh, funding Prince Andrew's legal bill. I don't know what people yeah, think so, about so that. on that particular issue, that last issue, Phil, do you think there's, a, there's an argument to say that there should be public disclosure of how that, how that legal bill is being paid? Yeah, I mean, the, the, another thing about the, the Queen's land, in particular the Duchy of Lancaster, is, is it's... There is a lot of secrecy involved in it. It is not um, under the scrutiny of the National Audit Office. It, it manages to avoid freedom of information requests. Uh, so, but yeah, I, I think I think this is a, an issue of um, of public interest. And I mean, I suppose I'm more interested in that that um, the Queen's finances themselves should be um, subject to public scrutiny. We could have a clear idea of, of what, what is legitimately public or private money and that there are no, you know, tax havens being used here or so on, but there is, a, you know, an, an, an incredible amount of secrecy surrounding that. So I don't know about whether making her payments to Prince Andrew public, but her finances, uh, in, in the first instance, I think ought to be. Any thoughts about this? Well, yes, indeed. Um, <laughs> I I live in a republic, and I'm glad <laughs> I live in a republic. Um, the fact that the Queen voluntarily started paying income tax um, really says everything here, because inequality is not about income as much uh, as it is about wealth. Um, and I, I, I think we really need to 
to press that point, um, if you're an egalitarian, it's not about taxing income. It's about taxing wealth. Um, and Piketty obviously has um, made a strong argument from that. The other point, um, <clears throat> and um, as Philip said, you know, uh, the constitution says that the monarchy has a right to um, the Duchy of Lancaster. Um, it, I really think there's a problem with having an unwritten constitution. I think unwritten constitutions, it's an oxymoron. I, you know, I have issues with American politics, but at least you can read the constitution and you can follow the arguments. But to have a constitution that it's unwritten, uh, I mean, no one really knows what the constitution says unless you, for some reason, you, you read Walter Budget. In, at some point in your life, but not many people do. Um, but unfortunately, because tradition is sacred, um, this is not even on the table as as <laughs> as a constitutional change. Can I come back on just uh, Vittorio's first point? I mean, I, I think it's I think it's we need to tax both income and wealth. I mean, you know, in the post-war decades, we had tax rates. 80, 90%. I think the average uh, was 87%. And it worked. Society became, you know, in, in the UK, in the US, in Western Europe, society became much more, m- much more equal. Uh, and, you know, I, I agree. But I, I, so I agree to, you know, we, this has sort of been wiped from the collective consciousness. But, you know, since the 1980s, where we sort of cut taxes to shreds and um, we've had spiraling inequality. Um, and the 2008 crash followed by the disastrous decade since. But uh, so, I, so I do think we need to go back to, to high, high taxes at the top, which is what Piketty supports. But, but you, you're right. I mean, we, we, we haven't even in history, we, ha- we have managed to, after the war to, to tax income somewhat. But wealth, we haven't really begun to tax. So I, think, I think we need to, ta- to tackle that as well. So it looks like we decided them. Next pod, we're getting George Monbiot, Thomas Piketty and Rishi Sunak on, yeah? <laughs> sure they're all free. Yeah, I'm sure they will be. Um, I, I, have a plan, I have a plan for the monarchy. On, can I, can I, can I yeah, put yeah. that in as well? I've got a, I've got a, a novel <laughs> plan to deal with the monarchy, yeah? So, so I mean, I'm kind of lefty on most things, but I do have a, a sort of hesitation about kind of getting rid of traditions. I think I like the philosopher uh, Jerry Cohen, the great Marxist philosopher Jerry Cohen, who defended a certain amount of small C conservatism. So, so my plan is, right, we have an elected head of state, non-political elected head of state, as, as they do in Ireland, which I, I believe works fairly well. I'm open to correction on that. But... They do all the stuff the Queen does. So, you know, they live in Buckingham Palace. They, you know, ride the carriages and knock on the doors with Black Rod or whatever it is. You know, I think that would be a wonderful way of, you know, keeping the traditions, but making it such that, you know, anyone can aspire to that. And it's, yeah, so that's that's my plan. What do you reckon? Head, heads of states are always political. Yeah. Apart Particularly if you have to deal with Boris Johnson, I think. <laughs> That and in fact, that's the point I was going to make when Vittorio was talking about an unwritten constitution. It kind of works or doesn't work, but at the moment it's coming under severe strain, right? So if you read someone like Peter Hennessy, who's probably the greatest living expert or one of the greatest living experts on British constitutional government, right? He's saying, you know, it's it, the British constitution is um, based on there being good chaps. 
And when you haven't got a good chap at the top, then it comes under real strain, right? Perhaps you get Peter Hennessy on as well. Um, but perhaps, perhaps you want Philip, everyone, anyone, everyone, everyone on this be the podcast apart from us, don't you? What's that? <laughs> you want everyone on this podcast apart from us? You keep mentioning other people who should be on. <laughs> no, I think we should be a bit. I, I, I want, I want you three on. That would be well. We could do part one with you versus George Monbiot, and then we could just move on, couldn't we? <laughs> but actually, Simon, I, I, I think the point you made is actually really serious because um, there were a lot of political commentators in Europe asking the question, why isn't the Queen stopping Boris Johnson from doing what he's doing? Um, and it was kind of hard to explain that, well, she's the head of state, but she cannot interfere with politics. And people were looking at me as if I had two heads. And really, it doesn't make any sense. Um, how can a head of state not interfere in politics? That's exactly what they should be doing. They're supposed to protect the Constitution, <laughs> whatever it is. Um, and the carry-ons of this last government have been unconstitutional. Um, yeah, so, and, it, and, it, and it comes yeah. back to your thought that a head of state is always political. So by choosing not to interfere and having a tradition of non-interference, that itself is, is a political judgment and part of the tradition. Yeah. But does it not work better when you, in countries like Ireland, where you do have a, to some extent, uh, elected but symbolic head of state? I mean, I, I guess even if they're not entirely removed from politics, does that, or oh, I don't know, does it still lead to? Well, um, our current president is not aligned to any political party, but he had the full support of the Labour Party. <laughs> And I went out canvassing for him. So formally, he's not. Substantially, we consider him to be a Labour Party president. Right. I mean, I agree with most of what's been said, but I feel we should speak up for the, the, the Conservative side, which I do have some sympathy with, but not, not enough on this issue. But, you know, the, the argument that always comes up from that side is that the problem is, with particularly a bunch of philosophers, is that you know you you think you can work out what's the most rational, the most efficient system on like a blank sheet of paper, and you look at all the traditions and you think this is crazy, this is bonkers. But the thing is, the traditions work. Do they work perfectly? No. Do they need to be adapted over time? Yes. But basically, working within the grain of tradition is is safe is a safer bet because it's passed the test of time in some way. And that in history, when people try to just Right, tear it up and think they can do better from a blank sheet of paper, they've often shown to be sort of horribly wrong. Now, I think that the problem with that argument for me is that it's too complacent. It kind of assumes we can't do better when we often can. But I think that if you are the, of a progressive ilk, I think you should sort of like at least take on board the, the kernels of truth in that. And I think it is true that it's it's usually, usually better to try and evolve the system it within the grain of tradition than it is to completely rip it up, which is why, you know, Philip's suggestion actually is, is, a, is a pretty good one in a way. We, we have the continuity of the head of state who is, if not completely politically neutral, then largely politically neutral. We have a, we have a tradition, continuing the traditions of those sort of pomp and circumstance and everything, but we get rid of the complete ridiculousness of someone inheriting all this privilege and land and money and getting away, away with tax. So, yeah, that's just a little halfpenny worth it.
Yeah, no, I, I agree with a lot of that. I describe myself as a non-revolutionary anti-capitalist. So I, th- I think, you know, you should try and see, you know, see what can be taken out of the market. You know, can we get rid of advertising in public spaces? Can we take more into public ownership or community-based ownership or, you know, but it's, it's all about the direction of travel. You know, I, I agree there are dangers, you know, you don't know what what is going to work if you kind of completely rethink things at once. So, yeah. Jerry Cohen, as I say, is, is the guy in this. I think there's a talk of him on YouTube defending his uh, Marxist version of conservatism. <laughs> and also, um, Jerry Cohen, of course, had one of the best titles of a philosophy book ever, which was, If You're an Egalitarian, How Come You're So Rich? Yeah. <laughs> Jerry, Jerry Cohen was also a brilliant impersonator philosophers, but that's a different topic in time. Yeah, there's, um, there's YouTube footage of him doing Gilbert Ryle, I think. Which is- Gilbert Ryle is hilarious. <laughs> Um, I'll Can put loads one, of links. One, oh, yeah, go on, Philip, and then we're going to draw. Just one, one more thing. One more thing that's been. One more thing that's been. <laughs> just one more uh, thing, Philip. The, the Saint Andrew, Saint Andrew, Prince Andrew, not Saint Andrew. Topic is that yeah, the, the BBC coverage seems to have, like almost all been focused on can Andrew make a comeback, you know, and rather than you know we're thinking about victims of sexual trafficking here. And yeah. I mean, Nicholas Witchell's comments seem to get more bizarre every time. He was he said on the six o'clock news maybe a route to come back for Prince Andrew is becoming a campaign a campaigner for sexual trafficking. Is he so you know somebody who was who was deep friends with Jeffrey Epstein? Even after he was convicted the first time, who on that infamous interview he 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 said he wasn't regretful for his friendship. It's only now under possible. It's only now he's expressing regret for that. I should say things carefully. Um, that you know that that would be someone we'd want to get on board for campaigning for uh, you know sex trafficking. Uh, I don't know what planet Nicholas Witchell's living on, to be honest. But anyway. And with that, let's draw things to close for part one. Uh, We'll join you again in part two. We're going to talk about COVID. And welcome back to part two. We always knew this would come. Parts of the world, the UK in particular, are thinking about opening up and lifting COVID restrictions. It may or may not be the right time to do so, but whenever we do open up and before people try to move on, what lessons can we learn from the pandemic or the pandemic thus far? Um, Victoria, you've recently published a book, Everything Must Change, Philosophical Lessons from Lockdown. Uh, What do you think are some of the main lessons we should learn? Right. Well, it is a very big topic. Um, So to narrow it down, I think we can think about the good, the bad and the ugly. And strange as it seems, um, I think there are a couple of good things to come out of of the last two years. Um, One of them is um, that perhaps, just perhaps, people realize the importance of the work that we do in universities uh, and the importance of experts in society. Because when the shit hits the fan, people run to the experts and they look for guidance. And universities is the place where you find experts. Um, And of course, both universities and experts need uh, resources and funding. And so I think one of the good things is how much actually the work that 
we do in universities actually has a value <clears throat> and something that people forget. The other good thing is that it reminds us um, that politics actually matters. And there is a big difference between good politicians and bad politicians. Um, so I'm in Ireland now, which is um, a country of 5 million people, which is the same population as New Zealand. Um, we've had many thousands of people um, who died because of COVID. And in New Zealand, they had um, a handful. And so you kind of wonder, you know, what is the difference? Now, of course, there are all sorts of differences, geographical, political to some extent. But you did have uh, Jacinta Ardern in New Zealand, who was an outstanding politician in a moment of crisis. And, and people realize that actually it's not true that all politicians are the same and they're all a waste of time and every party is the same. No, actually it matters and it can actually be the difference between life and death. In terms of um, the bad, and of course there was a lot of bad with COVID, but <clears throat> just to pick up a couple of issues, well, if good politicians are on the good side, you know, the bad politicians um, are one of the bad things. And I think... Um, COVID kind of exposed the ridiculous nature of populism. Um, you know, if you vote for a politician because they are incapable of combing their blonde hair um, and because they are a bit of buffoons and they make people laugh, you know what? In a moment of crisis, you need better than that. And so, uh, the Donald Trumps of this world um, got in trouble because of COVID. Um, Bolsonaro, I think, is going to have. Um, I mean, of course, anything can happen in Brazil, but you know, he might be in trouble. And I think populism, um, which was really going strong before COVID, uh, I'm not going to say that it's going to be wiped out by, by the pandemic, but it's certainly there's a reality check there. Um, the other ones are, uh, you know, that comes out badly um, is the libertarians. Um, all those people who think that uh, the state <clears throat> is a bad idea and we want to live in a society with less state and more market and any state interference is evil, um, which, you know, since the late 70s, that's been pretty much the dominant ideology, you know. We had a crisis and people were running to the state. What is the state going to do about it? Is the state going to find us the vaccines? Is the state going to give people <clears throat> an income when they cannot open their businesses? Um, so the politics matters, the state matters, and those things act, and universities matter within the state, and those things need to be properly funded and properly well run by, by competent people. <clears throat> and then there's the ugly side of of the pandemic. Um, and again, many ugly sides, but a couple of things. Uh, the ugly underbelly of modern society has really been exposed by the pandemic. Um, inequality, it kills. Um, there were a lot of people who did not have <clears throat> the luxury of isolating in the first lockdown and they had to go out and, and work 
and put themselves at risk. Um, the vaccine equity um, globally is, if not non-existent, laughable. And we realize that those problems are of a global scale. Um, and of course, we don't have the mentality to deal with global injustice. <clears throat> and that's pretty ugly. The other ugly part, I would say, is the anti-vax movement. Um, and there is, I think, an ugliness to um, making arguments that really, as far as I'm concerned, don't have any validity. Whether it's a question of, I don't want to be an experiment for medicine. I mean, I can't think of a vaccine or any other medicine that has been actually tested on hundreds of millions of people within a very short period of time. Um, and then the ugliness of this claim to liberty and freedom and rights, and that ugly sign that people use the language of rights um, in, in the wrong way, in the wrong context. It's like the right to harm others or the right to put other people at risk and never ever um, referring to a duty that we have not to harm other people, a duty to the common good. And that ugly side that rights have been taken over by the sense of selfishness. So there is the good and the bad um, and the ugly in this pandemic. Thanks, Victoria. Loads there. Uh, Philip, Julian, anything you want to pick up on? Yeah, just on, I mean, I guess <clears throat> picking up on the point about libertarianism and and the, the opposition that was strong in the Conservative Party to vaccine passports and it seems to me to just rely on a, a quite peculiar notion of freedom. I mean, so I guess in in some sense, if you're not allowed in a nightclub, if you ha if you haven't been vaccinated, that's in some sense infringing your free choice. But of course, if you're vulnerable and you can't leave the house because people aren't vaccinated, that ma massively more infringes your freedoms. It seems like a very oversimplistic conception of freedom. You know, we had, I can't remember which t conservative MP it was now saying. Um, Opposite, opposing vaccine passports because he claimed we, we're not a papers please society sort of insinuating you know a, a kind of totalitarian state where they demand your papers whereas at the same time you know happy to vote through you know the policing bill which is um giving giving police powers to to stop protests if they are a serious annoyance or they're too noisy, which seems to me a lot closer to um, an authoritarian society and infringements in our freedom. So, yeah, I mean, there is something a bit messed up here. I suppose just where I'd push back slightly, I mean, I think we should be careful not to kind of bash too much um, people supportive of the populist right. You know, it is it is crazy and it is it is it is so sad that, you know, a public health issue has become a kind of culture war issue. But I I feel, you know, people are end up in this direction when they feel, you know, they 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 don't have a stake in society. You know, I think like over over the course of the pandemic, the 10 richest men have doubled their wealth while 163 million people have been pushed into poverty. You know, this is I, I, people don't feel they have a stake in the economy and um, they you look to alternative ways of making sense of the, the meaning of your life. And that, that could mean some kind of wild conspiracy where, you know, vaccines are poisoning us or whatever. So I, th I think I, I'm just cautious of kind of 
bashing uh, supporters, not the leaders, but the, the, the ordinary people who are supportive of those movements. Not that that's necessarily what Vittorio was doing. No, no, I was bashing, <clears throat> and I'm going to defend bashing in a moment, but... Um... <laughs> Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, go go for it, Victoria. Oh, again, I think that we we worry too much about our rights and we don't ever consider our duties. Um, And just like um, as a citizen, you should consider your duty as a voter and actually do your homework before you vote. Um, if there is a pandemic, before you take a position on the rights and wrongs of a vaccine or any other extremely technical issue, um, and poo-pooing experts, uh, you know what? You you don't have a right to do that, and you don't have a right to spread um, fake news and false information about issues um, that are far too serious for that. So I do actually think that they need to be bashed. <laughs> I suppose I've I just... Got, did... Well, no, no, go on. Yeah, no, the, the only thing I'd say, well, a few things to say about that, I think, you know, I think there are reasons for not bashing in the sense that it further alienates people who already feel alienated. So there are pragmatic reasons for not doing it, even if you think there are some principled ones for doing it. But the other thing is, yeah, with the vaccine hesitancy and all that kind of thing, I think this is actually really tricky. And one thing that disturbs me is actually a lot of the people who who are vaccine skeptics, anti-vax, all this kind of stuff, actually, in their own minds at least, they're doing exactly what the likes of us have told them to do since the beginning of the Enlightenment, which is think for yourself, consider the evidence, don't just believe what you're told. Now, actually, if you're going to do a hierarchy of people who, 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 who do those things or don't, the bottom of the hierarchy are the majority who just go, yes, nod, and I'll take the vaccine, who are not doing any independent thinking, just taking it all on trust and doing it. Then you've got the people who, who try to think for themselves, and they question, and they look at the evidence themselves. They just don't do it very well, and it takes them to some dangerous, crazy places. And the top of the hierarchy are the people who think for themselves, do it properly, do it well, and reach the right conclusions. Now, the point is, you know, from a, from a moral injunction point of view, you know, do your homework, think about it, etc., etc. Probably, uncomfortably, uh, perhaps a lot of the people who just gone along with the, with the mandates, they've taken the vaccines, are perhaps at the bottom of that hierarchy. The, 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 it's the people in the middle of the problem. So it's actually quite tricky to sort of get morally indignant. Their failings seem to be failings of, of intelligence and application rather than uh, that they are worse from a moral point of view than those people who are simply doing what they're told because they're not questioning. Well, there's a feeling of, of arrogance as well. Um in terms of my opinion is as valid as the opinion of an expert. Um, and one of the reasons why I think, um, and this is part of the populist um, ideology, you know, we don't need experts, um, is the fact that people were getting frustrated that um, experts actually disagree on issues. Now, we are philosophers, you know, there is four of us in this virtual room and there are five different opinions because philosophers disagree about everything and that's and everyone knows that scientists disagree about everything but they do so behind the closed doors of conferences and stuff you know um and so i think there is a misconception about 
what science is. You know, science is the one truth, and the expert is there to tell us a one truth. Um, and if there's a disagreement, then none of the experts are valid, and therefore, I, you know, my opinion is as good as any. Uh, I think there's a bit of arrogance there. So I take your point. Of course, you know. Skepticism is the best thing that has happened since sliced bread in, in the Enlightenment. Um, and of course, we should be cautious. But um, you do need to justify your actions. Um, and you owe it to others to really justify your inaction in terms of not taking a vaccine when there is overwhelming evidence that you may end up in a hospital. And because you end up in a hospital, then hospitals cannot actually do other surgery <clears throat> because that's that's what's happened. Um, yeah, can I, can I just come in there on, on just what, what, something you were saying then, Vittorio? So something that, that's that's interesting about this whole situation is a public health crisis, right? So, let's, so I was reading something the other day uh, where someone was saying... Um, uh, but basically making making this point. So look, if someone wants to do something or not do something to their own body, right? So play dangerous sports or, you know, eat themselves to death and it doesn't have any implications for anyone else, then they should be allowed to do that. But things change when we've got a public health crisis, right? So is part of your thinking that in a case of a public health crisis, so you've been using the word duty, do, we, do I then have a duty to other people and therefore... In a way, I have more of a reason to defer to the medical and scientific experts than otherwise. Is, is that part of your thinking? Yes. <clears throat> so at okay. public crisis, there is a public good. Right. And you have a duty to the public good. Um, and I, I'm all for human rights and rights, of course. But there is a culture of entitlement that has creeped in, which was never supposed to be there. So my right means that I can do anything I want, even if it harms others. And it was never, that's not, never supposed to be the case. Um, so Simon, absolutely. Um, the duty to the public good, I think should take priority in a public health crisis. I mean, this thing about, you know, conceptions of liberty and them being somewhat uh, simplistic, I think is a really, really striking one. Um, at the Royal Institute of Philosophy last year, we had a really interesting talk by Hesuk Kim, I'm probably mispronouncing her name, Korean philosopher, about the response to the pandemic. And it was really, really very interesting because people make a lot of the so-called differences we saw between in East Asian countries where people are supposed to be, they're more collectivist, they're more obedient, all these stereotypes. And that's why they followed the mandates and wore the masks and all that kind of stuff. Whereas in the West, we're into individual liberty and freedom. And that's why people are more reluctant to do it. And she'd be on a talk, I mean, she did talk about sort of Confucian ideas and how these might provide interesting alternatives. But she just started by throwing John Stuart Mill back in our faces to say, look, where did people get this idea from? People always go to, if ever you talk about liberty, um, it normally takes you know, a minute, it's taken us about five, for someone to quote John Stuart Mill, who said, you know, the, the fundamental principle is that everyone has the right to do whatever they do without interference, even if it's not in their own best interest, as long as it doesn't harm others. And that's a simple proviso. That's the basic principle of liberty. Now, in this pandemic, 
mask wearing, vaccine passports, all that kind of stuff. It is all about harm to others, right? So it is ridiculous to claim that it's an infringement of your liberty not to be allowed to go unvaccinated into a crowded space where you might infect someone and potentially even kill them. That's something which is so core to a foundational concept of liberty. You've got to ask what's gone wrong with our society when we somehow got from that to an idea where we just basically assume that the individual can do whatever they want, really, except in the most extreme circumstances. And I think that's that's disturbing. Can I have one more go at the bashing point? Yeah, go on. <laughs> um, you know, I, I mean, I'm just thinking pragmatically, I suppose, you know, I think of Hillary Clinton, you know, when she was running for office, really laid into... Trump supporters as ignorant and and Bernie Sanders supporters as well. And and I think it kind of backfired, it kind of pushes people away. And also I think, you know, we have to take into account going back to Piketty, he has documented in quite some detail how um, you know, solid working class support for the for the left, for centre-left parties in County Durham, for example, where I live in the US as well, has systematically over decades fallen off as um centre-left parties have come into power and de-industrialisation has continued, inequality has not reversed. I think it sets in a cynicism. That's what I get talking to, you know, working, working class people in County Durham. They just think there's there's no hope, so I might as well have the buzz of f- following, you know, a bit of populism. And so, it, like, that's not to excuse it, but I think we need to come from a point of compassion and a point of understanding, even if just pragmatically speaking. I think if you say you know, F you, you ignorant fool. I think that just that's just counterproductive. For, for the record, when Julian was mentioning bashing early on, Vittorio was nodding his head, just in case anyone gets the wrong impression that Vittorio's out to bash half the world's populations. Uh, Vittorio? Um, no, I'm, <clears throat> I, I, I want to go back to John Surmill because... Um, I I I I am someone who quotes John Stuart Mill, but but I quote different things from other people. So one of the quotes that I really like uh, from On Liberty is when John Stuart Mill says, "A person may cause evil to others not only by his actions, but by his inaction, and in either case, is justly accountable." To them for the injury, and I think you know this idea that you know you can do harm by your inaction. And I think uh, not taking a vaccine is about your inaction and not just about what you do. And I, and I, and I, I think that's an important one. Um, I, I, on the pragmatism, yes, of course, you know, one has to be pragmatic. I think politicians have to be pragmatic and they, uh, they, they must be. But I think pragmatically, um, <clears throat> there is an argument to be made for um, mandatory um vaccinations. Um, And again, you know, it depends how you do it. But like most things that the state does, you know, they offer you carrots and they offer you sticks. And and to make sure that people do the right thing. Um, I was going to ask about that, actually, because I totally agree with almost everything that's been said so far. but, But except if it comes to actually forcing someone to have a vaccine i I, i'm i'm not sure i feel a little bit hesitant just in terms of you know bodily autonomy for i don't know i just i mean i i'm i'm not unsure but i i'm you know you you still think even in that i've got no problem with saying you can't do this you can't do that you know why should you have a right to go in a nightclub uh you making that right conditional 
but actually forcing someone to um, their invade their bodily autonomy i don't know i'm a little bit little bit hesitant about that okay there is a distinction between compulsory and mandatory okay um, good so compulsory is where actually someone puts a needle in your arm right i don't know of any state that actually has done that um not even north korea in fact north korea had no vaccination policy <laughs> so they were the most libertarian of all the countries in the world um <clears throat> So the issue is mandatory, which is, well, there may be some restrictions, just like there are restrictions to you driving above a certain speed limit and, you know, you have to wear a seatbelt and if you don't, there is going to be a fine. Those things are mandatory. Um, They're not compulsory. So a lot of the protest with with the vaccination was bodily integrity. No No one is touching your body, but... The fact that you are refusing a vaccine and then you say, but I also want to go to my job um, and possibly infect other people. And I also want to do this and that and go to pubs and go. To... Well, no, you know, I we respect your bodily integrity. You choose not to have your vaccination. We're not going to force the needle into your arm. But that right does not actually cover other rights that you think you have. Right. And now I want to travel. And now... That's that's yeah. a nice distinction. That's what we need philosophers for making distinctions. Yes, <laughs> yeah, it's a good one, and it's oh, sorry, it's a good one. It's a really overlooked one. Actually, I know a GP who is actually hasn't been vaccinated and has very strange ideas about COVID. Who was like ranting that you know vaccine mandates amounted to assault and battery. And I thought just what Victoria said, well, no, we're not saying we're going to pin you down and shove a needle in your arm. We're just saying that if you refuse to take it, there are certain consequences that you have to follow through on. So even 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 GPs don't get that distinction. So it has to be stressed. Can I ask you about something different, Vittorio, in, about your introduction? You're talking about uh, the good things, about how the state's acted and we get to see, therefore, how the how the state can be a good thing. And that's that. there's a lot of that in, in, in your book. And someone might say, yeah, I can see at a time of crisis, right? We need a really big state to come in because only a state can act in these particular ways and get us to do certain things and organise things so we can get a mass vaccination rollout programme and so on. But at some point, we won't be in a crisis, right? So someone might say, so so do we still need a big state or... You know, we, do we need to shrink the state? You know, what, so so what, what's your thinking around that? I mean, we, we can't always be 100% on red alert every crisis coming, can we? So there's, there's going to be something there about, you know, how big or small the state has to be. Could you talk us through some of that? Well, um, a big state is not something you can switch on and off um, uh-huh. when you need it. So um, in a sense, I, I do think that, you know, being a Rawlsian and thinking about the worst case scenario, making it the best it can be, you know, yes, you should be thinking about the worst case scenario. Um, and there can be many. Um, and usually the solution requires collective action. Um, mm-hmm. And what the state does is that it coordinates collective action. Um, without that collective action, I think in moments of crisis, you know, COVID is a huge crisis, but there are crises all the time um, of different sizes. And all crises, you know, you need collective action. So I, 
it doesn't work like that. Okay, we'll be libertarians until we have a big crisis, and then all of a sudden we get you know that it, either the state is there or it's not. Mm-hmm. Um, so I I do think that we should think about um, yeah sort of politics as crisis management. <laughs> I think with the NHS, you need to be very careful with the idea of efficiency. You know, I think there needs to be a bit of slack for emergency uh-huh. for the flu period. Whereas, I think if we if you run the, if you think of that as waste, and you know you run it tight a tight ship so that there's absolutely no waste, then well, just as Vittorio says, when it gets to the emergencies, just when it gets to annual flu season, as we seem to have every year, you know, you run out of steam. So yeah, I mean the NHS, which is um, it's one of the things that non-British people have always admired um, about England. Um, and it, it, it really is, it's just beyond sad <laughs> what has happened to it and the fact that it's being attacked uh, for political gain. But during this crisis, uh, a, a disproportionate percentage of people who perished were people that actually were working in the NHS, the nurses and the doctors. And and, and my word, I mean, um, the nurses, you know, paid what they're paid and with the working hours that they have um, and how quickly people will forget this COVID crisis when they ask for a pay rise or they ask for better con- working conditions. Um, it's it it's just it's just shocking um how how quickly people are prepared to um to destroy one of the best things of british society since since the post war um well i've got i've got one more question should we just do one more right so yeah. victoria you were talking about experts as well right and I was just going through my head. So you've got a particular view of experts, right? So it's it's kind of the medical scientific experts, certainly in the UK on our TV, kind of pretty much every evening, uh, Chris Whitty et al. talking. And of course, those are the people you're thinking that we should be kind of respecting and listening to and so on. But of course, I mean, going back to sort of Philip's interventions about people feeling a bit alienated, then they're looking for other people. It comes back to all that populist politics, right? So, So how do we choose our experts how do we know who's an expert right i mean what what are are the criteria there you know because clearly people were following who they thought were experts but it just weren't that they weren't the people that you and i might think of as experts right so people are looking for expertise certainly but how are we going to distinguish between the good and the bad experts Oh, absolutely. Um, and actually, there is a really, really interesting literature in all this in social epistemology. Mm-hmm. Um, because the thing about um, testimony is, is that there is a, there's an element of trust that goes into choosing your expert. Um, <clears throat> because if you're not an expert, then what can you do about trust? Now, there are some things you can do. First of all, you could listen to um, meta experts. So I suppose I would listen to someone who is an expert and works in a university more so than someone who's an expert and just writes tweets um, because that's all they do all day. You know, uh, Twitter is not a place where you find, you know, where you find experts. Uh, you may, but actually, if you really want an expert, you, you don't Google, you go to a university. So, um, you also consider things like conflict of interests. You know, why would this expert you know, have this opinion? Um, 
and you consider their track record. I mean, the, the thing that makes an expert really stand out is not so much the knowledge that they have, but their ability to use that knowledge in unprecedented circumstances. Um, and that's, that's a really unique skill. So COVID, to some extent, was a unique scenario. We, you know, experts were learning and they were applying their knowledge to, to a new context. The other thing I would say is um, that there are more to experts than to scientists. Um, and I actually think, and the reason why I wrote the book, um, is that I think philosophy is a field of expertise and actually that we have something to contribute to this um, public health crisis. There are moral issues. You know, before we were talking about distinctions between mandatory and compulsory and and the difference between rights and duties. Um, I really think um, that society would have done better if, apart from epidemiologists, they also listen to philosophers um, in, in this crisis um, and many other crises. So, again, I there is a way in which people think of experts as scientific experts. Well, there are many types of experts. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the expertise. I think I have got a three-stage process. I think people could go through, which is remarkably practical, really. I think the first thing people need to ask is, you know, in this domain that we're talking about, to what extent is there expertise and is there not? Because the thing is, there are lots of things we talk about where there isn't, isn't expertise, and, and people. It's, it sounds obvious, but because virtually everything has its accreditations, its certifications, you know, you see the badge on the door, a certified neuro-linguistic programmer. Well, it doesn't tell you that neuro-linguistic programming has got the same sort of level of credibility as something else. So the same goes for all sorts of other things. So you have to ask, first of all, in that domain, how are, is there expertise to be had? And then if you're going to be a bit more subtle than that, ask, you know, how far does that go? Because there are some domains where the expertise is such that if you find the right expert, you can pretty much accept what they say. And others, where it's a bit contested. I mean, nutri- I think nutrition is actually a very good example. That It is a domain where there is expertise, and there are experts. But the nature of the subject is that there's still such a lot we don't know that you should never take anyone's view as authoritative. So having established that there is some expertise to be had, you then look to the kind of person who is the best expert in this area. Because, again, it's surprising how often people, without really thinking, are, are you know listening to someone who's professor this or doctor that. But they're not professor or doctor in this domain. They're talking outside of their domain. And then, the, then having got through that, you can then start judging the individual's concern. And this is very interesting as well, because with any of these debates, you always find the mavericks. So you've got someone who is, you know, it, there is a, an area of expertise. This is a qualified expert. And yet they're saying things which other people aren't. And in that case, I think you just always have to, as it were, the burden of proof is on the maverick, not the other way around, right? If they're going against the opinion of all the other experts where there is genuine expertise, they might be right, but they're probably wrong. So you put a greater burden of doubt. All of that, applying all of that, again, Vittorio is right. You, there's trust. You can't avoid the element of trust in this. The idea that we can have trust-free knowledge, it just doesn't work. And if people are interested in this, Honora O'Neill did the, a fantastic series of Reef Lectures on the BBC a few years ago, and I'm sure you can listen to them online. There's a book on it as well. Very, very good on the importance of trust and how you know sometimes the problem is that people have an unrealistic expectation and that leads them to lose trust. So they have an unrealistic expectation that if this person knows what they're talking about, about the pandemic, they're going to get every call right. 
And when they noticed that someone was perhaps cautioning against something which wasn't quite as bad, or they didn't see happening something that really was bad, they then think that's a reason to distrust them altogether. And that's that's an awful mistake. Yeah, here's a, here's, here's a concrete policy proposal. If you want to call yourself a think tank and go on the BBC, you should be totally transparent about your funders. So we get, you know, the Institute of Economic Affairs on the BBC all the time as impartial experts, and they are not fully transparent about their funding. And so we don't know, you know, who's paying the piper. We don't have the right to judge that information with reference to to who, who, who's funding it. And, you know, we know in the past there was uh, tobacco companies um, using so-called think tanks to spread disinformation. We know this happens with climate change. So, you know, so that's, I just think it's so important in, in, in a democracy where you've got to decide who to judge. You can't, you can't work out everything for yourself, all the science, you know, all the economics to make your decision who to vote for. So, you, you know, you do need um, respected authorities. And I mean, what I like to say about the peer review system and, you know, perhaps academia more generally is, you know, it's like what Churchill said about democracy, you know, it's the worst way of doing things, but it's better than all the rest. You know, I don't know. I don't, I don't know how else we can do it. And I think it's good to put it that way because I think people do maybe have legitimate concerns about where things have gone wrong. You know, Julian's talked about unrealistic expectations. I think people sometimes have legitimate disappointments, uh, you know, where expertise has gone wrong, as it does, or where, you know, politics has, has let their communities down, where they've seen 30 years of their community dying. So again, you know, I think coming from a point of compassion and understanding and and explaining to people, yeah, look, there are these failings, but what what else are you going to do? Just look on any stuff on the internet, you know. I think once you once you put it that way and say what's the alternative, then um, you know, I I, I think you, you you see that yeah, we've got to have something like academic respectability, so that people who are going against the grain, like Julian on meat, the Mavericks there, <laughs> sorry, uh, can uh, can can yeah, can also you know be part of the debate, but. Um, you know, we can't just have all information being equal, I don't think. And, and full disclosure, this podcast is brought to you just by the four of us, no one else. <laughs> but if any news organisation wants to send me free subscriptions of their newspapers or magazines, that would be that would be delightful. Thank you. Um, listen, gents, we should draw things to a close there, I think. Um, thanks, uh, all of you, very much for your contributions. Julian Bugini, thank you. Uh, Vittorio, thank you. And Philip, thanks very much. Um, and thanks to you all for listening. Um, hope you can join us next week for another Philosophy Takes on the News. Mm-hmm.